Good evening, everyone. Thank you for coming tonight. Please turn your Bibles to 2 Chronicles chapter 20, the prayer of Jehoshaphat. While you're there, I need to set this up. So while we're here in the scriptures of 2 Chronicles chapter 20, and our minds are actually going to start in 1 Samuel and move rapidly through the scripture to get to the scriptures today. After the time of Judges, the 12 tribes demanded from God a king. Rusty Dunn talked about this in a message several months ago. The 12 tribes were then united under the kings that God selected. King Saul, then David, a man after God's own heart, and then Solomon. But because of Solomon's apostasy, to appease his many foreign wives, he built temples for their gods and joined in their idol worship. God split the kingdom in two. And ten of, the twelve, ten of the twelve tribes revolted under the new king, King Rehoboam, which is Solomon's son. And the ten tribes formed the northern kingdom, known as Israel. The two remaining tribes, Judah and Benjamin, formed the southern kingdom, known as Judah. And this included the city of Jerusalem. So from one very strong nation, two wicked two weaker nations emerged, each nation with their own king. The northern kingdom, Israel, all the kings that ruled Israel were evil, did not obey God. They they perhaps pretended to do God's will, but they led the people astray, did not seek to keep his commands. In some instances, they completely turned their backs on God and made Baal worship the the national religion. The southern kingdom, Judah, a little bit different story. They are ruled by kings who were descended from the previous king. When the king of Judah died, his son, one of the sons, became the new king. And when he died, his son became king. Thus, they preserving the prophecy, the one who is to come, our Lord Jesus Christ, would descend from the throne of David, and he would sit on the throne of David forever. But just because a king of Judah appears in the genealogy of our Lord, that doesn't mean that king was godly. More often than not, evil kings ruled Judah. And so throughout Judah's history, a good king who feared God when he died, we followed by a son who was an evil king, who disobeyed God, promoted the worship of idols, and led the people astray. And then, amazingly, times occurred when an evil king, after his death, was followed by his son, who was a good king, one who feared God and followed his law. So it was in the history of the kings of Judah, the pattern of a good king followed by an evil king or several evil kings then followed by a good king through their history. Jehoshaphat was the fourth king of Judah and he was one of the exceptions. His father Asa, who ruled 41 years, was a good king, a king that feared God. And his son Jehoshaphat was also a good king a very good king. He ruled 25 years. His heart was devoted to the ways of the Lord. He took away the high places and the groves out of Judah to destroy the worship of idols. And then he sent teachers throughout the land to teach the book of the law, to fill the void left by the destruction of the idol worship. Scripture says the surrounding nations feared Jehoshaphat. They brought him tribute. He had peace on all sides. He led reforms in the land 
He instructed judges to rule in the fear of the Lord. But Jehoshaphat had faults. The chief fault is that he sought to make an alliance, a peace treaty with the king of Israel. Try to make an alliance between good and evil. And in retrospect, we can sit here and say that was wrong for a good king to be allied with an evil king. But from a human perspective, would we do the same? For the previous 60 years since Solomon's rule, through the reign of the three previous kings of Judah, there was constant war between Judah and Israel. The two nations clashed frequently, constantly, five, constantly having border type of battles. Now, during the reign of Jehoshaphat, there was peace between Judah and Israel. So Jehoshaphat set his heart to be joined to make a treaty with the king of Israel, who is Ahab. I mentioned that the kings of, the kings of Israel were all evil. There were 19 total, and they were all evil. So he had the evil kings of Israel, and then he had Ahab, the king of Israel during the reign of Jehoshaphat. Ahab was very evil. Scripture speaks about him being the worst of the bunch. He made Baal worship the primary religion of Israel. And while he was Jewish, and he knew Jewish laws and customs, and sometimes God acted on his behalf, his wife was not Jewish. She was a Phoenician, pre a Phoenician princess, the daughter of a foreign king. As was the custom in those days, she was given to be the bride of Ahab as part of a treaty between the two nations. Her name was Jezebel. She was a foreign wife. And she was one of the most evil women in scripture. She knew very little and cared nothing about Jewish law. She went out of her way to rid the land of worship of God. She greatly influenced the king to violently purge the nation of Israel of their prophets. She was so ruthless that Obadiah, a member of Ahab's court, this is not the Obadiah the prophet, but this man had to hide in caves the prophets in Israel who survived her purges. She was the true power of the throne. She instituted, she influenced her husband to institute Baal and Asherah worship on a national scale. Her influence on the nation of Israel further turned the people from God to the worship of pagan idols. The nation's total depravity and moral decay during this time caused Elijah to mourn to God that he thought he was the only worshiper of God in all of Israel. This was the man that Jehoshaphat sought to make a peace with. So in the 18th year of his reign, he and Ahab joined forces to fight an enemy of Israel. But their plans backfired. During the battle, Jehoshaphat was spotted by the enemy in his, in his robes, and they pursued after him, but the Lord protected him as he fled. Ahab, on the other hand, disguised himself as a soldier, but was wounded in battle, and later died that evening. For this, God soundly rebuked Jehoshaphat for trying to ally himself with an evil king. But God spared him from punishment, and Jehoshaphat continued in the last years of his reign to honor God. But in a rabbit trail I'm taking now, the real damage that Jehoshaphat caused by aligning himself with Ahab was through the future generation. Part of the peace treaty between him and Ahab was that his son, Jehoshaphat's son, Jehoram, the future king of Judah, was given King Ahab's daughter, and presumably Jezebel's daughter, to be his wife, and her name was Athaliah. In my mind, she was the most evil woman in the Bible. She was more wicked than her mother. 
Through a direct influence, she nearly destroyed the divinic line of kings. The nation of Judah unraveled after many years, after many good years of Asa and Jehoshaphat. Her husband, the new king, rejected God and was evil. After he died, Athaliah's son was rooted for one year, again influenced by his mother. And then, in the most evil acts committed in the scripture, Athaliah, after her son, the king, died, seized the throne of David. She killed every one of the heirs to the throne. This included her own grandchildren. She nearly wiped out the line of descendants of David. Kent talked about this in a sermon several weeks ago. But standing before this evil woman, one very brave woman, the sister of the king who was assassinated, the king that just died, her name was Jehoshiba. She was the daughter of King Jehoiim and the granddaughter to King Jehoshaphat. But while she was the daughter of the king who was married to Athaliah, she was probably not her daughter, but the daughter of another one of the king's wives. Jehoshiba was the wife of the priest Jehoiadiah. She took and hid the one remaining heir, a one-year-old boy named Jehoash, who actually was her nephew, and she hid him for six years in the temple, away from Athaliah. When the boy turned seven years old, the priest Jehoiadiah brilliantly orchestrated a series of events to overthrow Athaliah's rule. The queen was taken out of the temple and put to death, and Jehoash was crowned king of Judah, a seven-year-old boy preserving the line of descendants of David. This all took place in the 16 years following Jehoshaphat's death. A very evil woman sat on the throne of David, and a very brave woman preserved the one remaining heir to maintain the prophecy that the Lord would sit on the throne of David. Okay, now, in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, Jehoshaphat is now late in his reign, rebuked by God, but still blessed by him. He has peace in the land, he continues with reforms. There's prosperity through his realm. But now God is to put him to the test. He's about to face the greatest trial he's ever faced. It's a time for the refining fire of God. Many of us have felt that fire, the times when God brings refining fire into our lives. And refining means just what it says. To use heat to make something finer, to refine so what we do, we take heat to make crude oil into gasoline, to make corn mash into ethanol, to make metal ore into steel. God uses heat, fire, to make believers whose hearts are dedicated to the Lord, but also have other things pulling on their hearts, things like money, and valuables, power, career, relationships, sports, music, hobbies, personal appearance, Things that distract us from God, that separate us from God. Things that God has to burn off through the refining fire. So now let's begin in chapter 20. I want to read the first two verses. After this, the Moabites and the Ammonites, and with them some of the Meonites, came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, a great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from beyond the sea. And behold, they're in Hazazon Tamer, that is, in Gedi. Okay, you bring the map up now, guys. So what's going on here? Okay. Jehoshaphat, the king, 
learns that a vast army has suddenly appeared. They're just a short distance away. They're bent on destroying Judah, Jerusalem, and the king. On the map here, you may see the nations of Moab Ammon. These are nations that have combined forces to march on Judah. These two nations are descendants from the two sons of Lot. You recall in Genesis the Lot, his wife, and his two daughters escaped the destruction of Sodom. But Lot's wife looked back on the destruction and became a pillar of salt. Lot and his daughters fled to the wilderness. Being alone, his daughters hatched a plan. To preserve offspring for their father, they got him drunk with wine. And they both had relations with him. And they both became pregnant. Each bore sons, and each son became a nation, the nation of Moab and Ammon. These two nations were thorns to God's people throughout the early history of Israel. During the Exodus, God forbid Moses and his people to destroy their nations. In Deuteronomy 2, he said, do not harass them or contend with them. They could have destroyed them with God's help, but God told them not to interfere with their other nation. God wanted the people to be in Canaan. He didn't want them to conquer these other lands. And then throughout Israel's history, they had battles and wars with the nations of Ammon and Moab. Israel often fell in the pagan worship of the gods of these two nations, and God used these two nations to judge Israel during the time of Judges. Israel would be conquered by one of these two nations and become their servants, but Israel would repent and God would intervene and free Israel from the bondage. During the reign of King David and Solomon, Ammon and Moab became Israel's servants. But now, late in the reign of Jehoshaphat, some 80 years after Solomon's reign, these two nations, these two armies, in an orchestrated move, using the Dead Sea as a shield, marched on the eastern side of the Dead Sea and came up alongside the south side of the Dead Sea and were joined by the Mionites. The Mionites were an Arab tribe. They're not directly mentioned in the King James, but they're believed to have lived somewhere near the ancient city of Petra, which is pretty far down on the map, although there's some debate about that. But the Midianites joined up with the two armies. Now I want to take a pause here and jump down to verse 10 and read something Jehoshaphat says in his prayer. So going down to verse 10, Jehoshaphat says, And now behold, the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came from the land of Egypt, and whom they avoided and did not destroy... Jehoshaphat in his prayer mentions the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir. Now there's two Mount Seirs in the scriptures. The first is mentioned in the book of Joshua. It's the location of the land that's allotted for Judah. It's one of the outliers of the land. But the Mount Seir mentioned here is located south of the Dead Sea. The Seir Mountains extend from the Dead Sea straight south to the Red Sea, to the Gulf of Aqaba. In this region, that, this is in this region, the Aaron the priest died during the Exodus. The Seir Mountains are located in the land of Edom. Edom is the land where Esau settled. Esau is the older twin brother of Jacob. And the scriptures, the people of Edom are called the Edomites. They're also called the people of Mount Seir. The two names, Edom and Mount Seir, are used interchangeably in the scriptures. So the people of Mount Seir, the Edomites, 
Like the nations of Moab and Ammon, again in Deuteronomy 2, God would not let the Israelites during the Exodus attack them during the desert wanderings. And now, 700 years later, following the Exodus, at least one people group from Edom have joined the forces with the armies of Ammon and Moab to, to march to Jerusalem. And this great army of these three nations is now at Engedi. Engedi is on the western shore of the Dead Sea. It's an oasis. It's just 25 miles or a day's march from Jerusalem. And the king and the nation is caught completely off guard. There's been peace in the land for 20 years. If danger would come, it would come likely from Israel to the north, perhaps from the ancient enemy, the Philistines, although by now the Philistines' the nation is in decline. His father Asa dealt with Ethiopians. But now, in the wilderness near the Dead Sea, a vast army has marched undetected to Engedi. They're just a day's march from Jerusalem. Perhaps too late to get the army mustered and ready. They haven't had a battle in a very long time. Suddenly, an enemy has appeared, a vast enemy, and there isn't any time to prepare. Before we move on, I want to look at something in verse 2. This confused me. We have many different versions of Bibles we use in this scripture, in this church. And I want to explain something here, kind of a side trail. ESV says in verse 2, Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, A great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from beyond the sea. Behold, they are in Hazanon Tamar, which is in Gedi. In the King James Version, it says, Then there came some that told Jehoshaphat, saying, There cometh a great multitude against thee from beyond the sea on this side, Syria. And behold, they be in Hazanon Tamar, which is in Gedi. In verse 2 in the ESV, it says, They come from Edom. In the King James, in the same verse, it says they come from Syria. Make it even more confusing, the NSB Bible says they came from Aram. Now these two lands are hundreds of miles apart. So why this confusion? Well, the Hebrew word here for this nation is three characters long. It's been rendered in two different names. We compare the original three-letter Hebrew word for Edom which is the original three-letter word for Aram, they're nearly identical. Aram is the ancient Hebrew word for Syria. The only difference here is, the only difference between the words is some punctuation marks on the second and third letter. Very difficult to distinguish on ancient parchments. So both words have been used in this section of verse 2, but in the setting here, Edom appears to be the more correct rendering. Okay, back to Second Chronicles. Now, Jehoshaphat, the nation, is peering at an enemy. They only, own thing, they only have one thing they can do. And let's read what they do in verses 3, 4, and 5. Verse 3. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord and proclaim a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah they came to seek the Lord. And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court. It says that Jehoshaphat feared, and for good reason. Not only was the nation in trouble and the city in trouble, but the king's in big trouble. For those of you who study the Old Testament passages, when kings get captured, either kings of Israel or enemy kings get captured, it doesn't go well for the kings. 
But I want you to look at the fourth thing that the king does to prepare to pray here in verses 3, 4, and 5. The first thing he does, he sets himself to seek the Lord. He clears his schedule of distractions. His thought, his mind, his person now become focused on this time to pray. There's nothing else on his mind that's more important than preparing to pray. A time to recall, the, recall to mind the things to be in prayer about. A time to prepare to pray. The second thing he does, he calls for a fast throughout the land. Why do we fast? Why purposely deny ourselves food? A period of reflection, perhaps. Perhaps a natural, a natural reaction when a crisis emerges or during a time of despair. A time that was for the enjoyment of eating is now dedicated to preparation to pray. A time to ask for forgiveness. A time to become humble. A time to purposely weaken the flesh so you can lean more on God. The third thing he does, or they do, the nation gathered together to pray. You can imagine when the proclamation goes out to fast because the enemy army is approaching, the people outside Jerusalem fled their homes to seek the safety of the walled city. So perhaps the city swelled with people and the nation has moved now to come together to pray. The fourth thing he does, they seek to be in the Lord's presence. King Jehoshaphat stood in the house of the Lord before the new court. I want to turn briefly to 2 Chronicles chapter 7. Just for a moment. The Lord appears to Solomon the night after the temple has been dedicated. And he tells Solomon, he tells him about the blessings he would bring to the nation for their obedience. And he warned them of the consequences for the disobedience. Now, we're all familiar with verse 14. But look now at verses 15 and 16. We read, Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my ears will be there for all time. Jehoshaphat and all of Judah are at the place where God instructed Solomon to come and pray at the steps of the temple before his presence. These four things Jehoshaphat took to prepare to pray. He set his face to seek the Lord. He fasted. He assembled with the nation of Judah. He entered into the Lord's presence. Is this Old Testament preparation for prayer suitable for today's New Testament church during a time of crisis? First, can we set ourselves to seek the Lord? Clear our minds and activities to prepare ourselves for prayer, to think about what our prayer should be. Can we fast as a means of prayer to humble ourselves to grow in our dependence of God? Third, can we assemble as a church here in this building and a park and a shelter open field and a secret place for fear of detection or maybe in a forest in the middle of winter? We need to assemble as a church. Fourth, then we enter into his presence, not by gathering at the foot of a magnificent, a magnificent temple, but gathering with other believers, all united by our salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> and now we come to the prayer of Jehoshaphat. I want to read verses 6 through 12. 
beginning in verse 6. O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God of heaven? Rule over all the kingdoms of the nations, and your hands are power and might, so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel, and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? And they have lived in it and have built for you in a sanctuary for your name, saying, If disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. And now behold, the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came from the land of Egypt, and whom they avoided and did not destroy, behold, they reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession, which you have given to us as to inherit. O our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that's coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And Jehoshaphat's prayer, remember, this army is a very short distance away. And for all Jehoshaphat knows, they may be at the walls in five minutes shooting arrows over the walls. When I begin my prayers in distress, I start with my petitions, and I pray my petitions, and I end with my petitions. Jehoshaphat doesn't begin that way. In verse 6, he begins this way. He says, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might, so that none is able to withstand you. He says, the God of our fathers. There are many gods in the days of Jehoshaphat. Gods called Baal, Asheroth, Chemosh. But Jehoshaphat identifies this God as the God of his fathers, the God of David, the God of the prophets, God of judges, the God of Moses, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Lord God of Israel. And then he says, the God of heaven. And our God of our fathers is just not the God of the nation of Israel, and he's just not the God of heaven. He's also the God of the heathen. Whether the heathen believe it or not, he is God over all the nations of the world. He is sovereign over the entire earth. Over kingdom, Other kingdoms may worship their own gods, but there's only one God, and he is supreme. So Jehoshaphat begins by praising God for his sovereign rule. He continues in verse 6 and says, In your hand is power and might. He praises God for his power. God is all-powerful, the omnipotent power of God. Jehoshaphat begins his prayer by speaking about God, about his sovereign rule, and his power over all the kingdoms. And then he continues in verse 7. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel, and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? Verse 7, he says, not just the God of the fathers, or the God of heaven, or the God of heathen, but our God, the God of the people standing with the king in the temple. And he continues in verse 7, And speaks to God about his goodness to them. He speaks about what God has done to his people in the past. How he promised Abraham that this land would be for your descendants. And he kept his promise. Giving his descendants this land by driving out its inhabitants. And then in verse 8 we read, And they have lived in it and have built for you in a sanctuary for your name. In verse 8 he mentions God's presence in their lives now. 
The descendants of Abraham have lived in this land and have built a sanctuary for you in your name. And they are now standing in this sanctuary. In verse 9, Jehoshaphat prays, If disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house before you, for your name is in this house, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. Joseph now speaks to God about his promises to his people about the future. If disasters come, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house, not because this house is filled with splendor and riches or beauty, but because your name is in this house. And when we cry, you will hear and save. So Jehoshaphat begins his prayer not the way I begin. I jump right into my need, skipping completely over the things that Jehoshaphat mentioned. Before Jehoshaphat even mentions their great need, before he addresses the crisis, he praises God and says, You are sovereign. You are all-powerful. You have shown goodness to us in the past. We stand now in this house because you are here. And we remember the promise you've made for our future to hear us and to save us. Only after this does Jehoshaphat make his petitions. Let's read now verses 10, 11, and 12. And now behold, the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came from the land of Egypt, and whom they avoided and did not destroy. Behold, they reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. O our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Jehoshaphat here recounts God the Exodus. God would not allow his people to invade and conquer these three nations. They easily could have done that with God, but instead, God instructed Moses and the Hebrews to not interfere. And now these nations threaten to destroy Judah. Jehoshaphat does not ask God to preserve his people for their sakes, but for God's reputation. God's people are threatened, the nation, the city, the temple, and probably most important, the throne of David, the seat where the Son of God will occupy. God's reputation is at stake. His possession is at stake in Judah. If Judah is overrun, then the surrounding nations will say that God of the Hebrews was powerless to stop the armies of the enemy. Finally, at the end of the prayer, in verse 12, Jehoshaphat asks that the Lord to execute judgment on the enemy. And Jehoshaphat ends his prayer with humility. The king admits he and the nation are powerless against this vast army and they do not know what to do. They have come to the end of the rope and now they are utterly dependent on God. They have no power, no might, no answers to the threat before them. They can do nothing else but to yield to the will of God. After the prayer, the king and the nation yield to God. At the end of the prayer, Jehoshaphat is where he began. In verse 3, he set himself to seek the Lord. And now in verse 12, his eyes and the eyes of the nation are on God. In our church, we have many ways to demonstrate as to how to pray. The apostles asked our Lord, teach us to pray. And he taught them the Lord's Prayer. Not to be recited over and over, but as a pattern, an outline to prayer. 
Many other patterns and outlines exist on how to pray. As a church, we often use the Acts acrostic. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. Here, we have another method to pray, particularly in a time of crisis. First, praising God for his sovereign control. Then praising God for his power. Remembering his goodness by reciting what he has done in the past. And for us, in a New Testament church, we have one thing that we can be thankful for if we can think of nothing else. Something that Jehoshaphat knew nothing about. We have to be thankful that the Son of God came to earth to be a ransom for our sins. And we continue in our prayers to speak to God about his presence in our lives today. How our lives are directed by the Holy Spirit present within us. And like Jehoshaphat, we speak to God about his promises that are yet to come. Promise in the New Testament passages such as, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I go and prepare a place for you. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And many, many promises exist in the New Testament. Finally, we bring our petitions, our urgent need, to those, th- to those things that, we are, that distress us, We ask God for his power to address our great needs, but also seek that God's reputation is not diminished and that he may be glorified by answering our prayer. And finally, we yield to his will. We don't put our needs on the altar, only pull them back down so we can solve it ourselves. It seems in our lives, in my life particularly, Things happen against me that puts me more and more in a desperate situation. Nothing seems to work or resolve the problem. How often are we driven to dead end after dead end? We have come. We have no more roads to take. Every door is shut. Every window is closed. We are caught up on every side. We have only one choice, and that is to yield to the will of God. Does God answer Jehoshaphat's prayer? Well, you've got to read the rest of the chapter to find out. It's a cliffhanger. But I want you to look at a couple more things after the prayer. Let's consider after the prayer what the king and the people do. In verse 12, we've talked about yielding to God's will. We pray and we yield. We don't pursue our way, but we yield to God's will. Now in verse 13, we read, Meanwhile, all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones and wives and their children. Why are they standing around? Didn't they have anything else to do? As the enemy was just outside the walls, yet they stood waiting for what? Were they waiting for an answer to prayer? Yes, they had nothing else they could do. Now they waited for God's answer. They waited for an answer to prayer. Do we do that? Do we pray and wait for God's answer? Or do we think our prayers just bounce off heaven's doors? Or we think... God's not going to answer that prayer. Do we doubt God when our prayers are finished? Or do we, ex- do we expect an answer from God? Do you think that God answers prayers? It seems like sometimes he doesn't. But God does answer prayers. Sometimes he says yes. Oftentimes he probably says no. For those of you who parents, how many times do you say no? How many times do you say yes to a child? I bet the no's outweigh it by a lot. Because parents... We know what is best for a child. And what a child is asking now is not wise to do. Do you think God does the same? He says, no. That's not a wise request. 
When God says no, we can't lean on understanding. We simply trust in the Lord. Many times, God may answer the prayer by saying, wait. Or perhaps he says yes to our prayers, but he says, we're going to do it my way. God does answer prayer. Do you believe that he will? Personally, this is a lifelong struggle for me, waiting for God to answer prayer, waiting for him to answer my prayers. Another thing to do after prayer, particularly after answered prayer, let's skip down to verses 18 and 19. Verse 18. Then Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And the Levites and the Kohathites and the Karaites stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. Do we worship the Lord after prayer? Do we do this? Do we rejoice with answered prayer among ourselves and forget or don't acknowledge the very one who gave us our request? Or do we give a thumbs up and raise our hand for a high five and say, thanks, Lord, and move on? Do you, do I? Do we take the time to worship the Lord after prayer? Do we take the time to worship the Lord when prayer is answered? To conclude this time of studying Jehoshaphat's prayer and this prayer offered by his king, during the greatest crisis of his reign. We've seen how he first prepares to pray. Can we perhaps consider to do those things in a time of crisis before seeking the Lord? Four things to do. Set our face to seek the Lord. Put aside those things that distract us. Clear the calendar. Perhaps consider how to pray. Consider what we should pray, what we say in our prayers. Should we fast? A time to be humbled? A time to seek forgiveness for sins? A time of dependency? Should we assemble with believers? Call an assembly to come together in a church, a park, a stadium, a street corner, an abandoned building, a cave, a forest in the winter. It doesn't matter. And do we enter into his presence? Not as Jehoshaphat did, standing in the temple, but through the spirit that dwells within us that gives us a path to the throne of God. In our prayer, Can we consider a means to pray in a crisis such as the one that faced Jehoshaphat? To praise God for his sovereign rule over all the earth. All people are under his authority. None could do anything outside his will. Do we praise God for his power, his all power? No one can stand his power. His will cannot be thwarted. Can we remember those things that he has done for us in the past? Previous answered prayer. Previous blessings to yourself at church a people group, a nation, and if nothing else, the suffering and death of our Lord on the cross. This is something we can never stop being thankful for. Can we continue and speak to God about his presence in our lives today, how we are his sheep and he is our shepherd, to speak to God about his precious promises to us, promise found throughout the scripture, promises that he will answer our prayers, promises to give us confidence in his protection, And do we petition God for our needs, our great needs, petition him for his power to answer our prayers and that his reputation is preserved and he is glorified. And then when our prayers are finished, do we yield to his will? Do we wait for an answer? Do we believe that he will answer? And do we worship him? Do we worship him 
after our prayers are made, and especially to worship him when our prayers are answered. Let's close now in a word of prayer. Father, we have studied this prayer by a king made many thousands of years ago. Where we see that his prayer beseeched you to come and intervene to protect the nation, to save your reputation. We've seen how he prepared for prayer. We've seen how he prayed. And we've seen the response after prayer. If there's anything in here, Lord, that is missing from our lives that you want us to do, Make it evident to us that as we pray, we can do these things. But above all, Lord, you be glorified in our prayers each and every day. We thank you for your presence in our lives. You sit on the throne of high, and we praise you from our lowly spots here in our church. In your name we pray. Amen.